Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 341, Reflections on My Debate with Dr. Andrew Loke. In this episode, I want to follow up with some thoughts about the debate. I thought it was a very rich debate. There was a lot of content to it. And I thought that Dr. Loke did a very good job. He gave pretty clear and organized arguments. He kept it on that level without trying to be a big bully, like so many silly lesser apologists are wont to do in these contexts. And he actually read and listened to some of my material, which is no easy task because there's quite a lot of it out there. And then he tried to tailor his arguments and his objections to what he thought I was going to say. That's how you do a debate. And just as a reminder about what his opening statement arguments are, here again is his little summary at the end of his opening statement. So in conclusion, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is truly divine within the being of the one God, Yahweh. Premise one, according to the New Testament, being involved in creating all things is sufficient for being truly divine. And we see this in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Verse 36. Premise two, according to the New Testament, Jesus was involved in the creating of all things. We see in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, John chapter 1, and also Colossians and Hebrews, which I, know, which I didn't have time to explain, but maybe I'll do so in doing the rebuttal or during the uh, discussion. So therefore, it follows from premise one and two that according to the New Testament, Jesus is truly divine. In addition, I have presented another argument from John 20, 28. My Lord and my God imply that Jesus is truly divine. And I have also presented another argument from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The word epikaleo used for Jesus implied that he is truly divine. And also the genre of the letter as well, right? Um, I explained earlier on. And finally, there are also other passages. I mentioned Philippians 2, 6 to 11. And there are also a number of passages in the Synoptic Gospels as well. Matthew 28, 19, Mark 14, 62, Luke 24, 55. These passages also imply that Jesus is truly divine. Now, I didn't have time to explain this point for all, but maybe I'll do so during the rebuttal. We'll, we'll see. So I want to highlight here that any one of these four arguments is sufficient to establish the conclusion that Jesus is truly divine. You know, any one of these arguments will be enough, but, no, but we have four arguments. So we have very good reasons to believe that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is truly divine. Well, he did try to fit a little bit too much in, right? He didn't really have time to go into Hebrews 1 or Colossians 1 or those other four verses that he threw out there. He probably could have cut those from the presentation. But about his four arguments, honestly, I think I did a pretty good job of rebutting all of them. About the first argument, I made the point that the Old Testament and New Testament doctrine is that there is exactly one creator, and this is just Yahweh himself. And furthermore, Yahweh turns out to be the same person as the Father in the New Testament. So then, the background assumption of the whole New Testament is that the Father and no one else was involved in creation. And this is a very good reason to look for other interpretations of those famous alleged Christ-creator passages. Now, of course, you have to then go on to find such interpretations. I think you can. Second argument had to do with 1 Corinthians 8.6. I think I did a good job of showing why we need not take that passage as having to do with creation, that is, teaching a doctrine of two creators, a direct creator and an indirect creator, through whom God acted. As I pointed out, if God created through you, then you're not the creator in the Old Testament sense, because the assumption there is that you're the ultimate source of the cosmos, not just somebody who is involved somehow. 
While we're on it, I did want to make an additional point about 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Dr. Loke was pushing the point that one way that the Jews distinguish their God from the alleged deities of the nations is by saying that their God alone created the world. Yeah, that's exactly right. These other deities didn't have anything to do with it. Whatever they are, they're not of the same status as God, whether they're pure fictions or just some kind of lesser unseen beings. That's right. But it doesn't follow from the fact that Paul is discussing food sacrificed to idols and whether or not Christians can eat that, that when he says that for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all, and one Lord through whom are all, that he's talking about creation. And an additional point that I think can help you to see this is to realize something about the pagan mindset. And this applies to polytheists today, such as Asian Buddhists, Hindus, adherents of traditional Chinese religion in China. The polytheist and idolater thinks that there are all these different unseen beings, all these different deities, which somehow govern or make themselves relevant to different areas of human concern. Right? So you want success in war, you'd better take care of the god of war. You want your wife to get pregnant, you better take care of the god of fertility by making a sacrifice at her shrine. You want to do well in school, you want to make sure you pray to the goddess of education. There's quite a bunch of diverse obligations put upon the polytheistic worshiper. They think they need the help of all these deities for different reasons, and so there's a lot to do. And that's in part what they're doing you know, by attending public festivals dedicated to these deities and eating meat that's been sacrificed to them and so on. Paul is saying, those guys have a lot of gods and lords. I think he's mentioning here gods as being the highest level of deities and lords as being a level under that. I think that's what he's referring to, and he's sort of taking advantage of that. They think they need all this range of gods and lords. But for us, for us Christians, there's one God from whom are all, and one Lord through whom are all. We get all we need from God and through Christ. So just talking about God and Christ as the source of eternal life, or the source of the blessings of the new covenant, or something like that, it actually does fit in well with the context of contrasting a Christian view from a pagan religious outlook. Now, I'm not saying that this background of ideas demands my interpretation, but what I'm saying is that it's relevant and helpful, and when you consider it in conjunction with the fact that Old and New Testaments both teach one Creator, who is Yahweh Himself, that is to say the Father, and so therefore Jesus can't have been involved, when you consider all that together, I think you have very good reasons to think that this is not about the Genesis creation. And so Paul is not weirdly sneaking in a little point here about two creators, which would be a very controversial point right in the middle of this discussion about eating food sacrificed to idols. My Lord and my God? Yeah, I think I gave a good contextual reading of that based on the rest of the book that that statement occurs in, which it doesn't imply that Jesus is divine. Can Jesus be called upon? Sure, that's part of his current role as head of the church and uh, kind of ruler of everything under God. Just because typically that Greek word epikaleo is used in reference to God or a God doesn't mean it can't be of use in the case of the exalted Jesus as well, who's not a God, since the one true God is his Father. Is it true that greetings that mention God and Jesus at the start of, say, Paul's letters imply that Jesus is a God? No, of course not. 
In fact, several times, such as in Ephesians 1, he will say that the Father is the God of Jesus, which implies that Jesus can't be the one God himself. Someone else is. I also went and read that article that he mentioned about uh, divine plurality in Genesis 1, and um, let's just say I was not convinced. I think it did a nice job of laying out the several different options for deciding what could be meant by having God say, let us make man in our image and likeness. But the interpretation that it argues for is that it's trying to teach some sort of unspecified plurality within God is just bizarre and very unconvincing. One last just general thought about his overall case. For the most part, what he's saying is that there are these texts, and an obvious implication of them is that Jesus is fully divine. Really? If that were true, why would they still be arguing about whether Jesus is fully divine for decades during the 300s AD? Right? What's the chance of that if those really are clear implications of those texts? Very little chance because they agreed on these books. All the mainstream Christians agreed on them, even going back to the 100s. The point that these are clear implications really isn't going to fly. And it's not clear that they're implications at all, as I think I showed. Now, this debate was kind of about two things, so it was a little bit messy. It was about the meaning of the New Testament texts, but it was also about the closely related matter of, is there a two-nature theory that makes sense, right? If you don't think there is a two-nature theory that makes sense, uh, that's plausible and, you know, could possibly be true and seems to be well-motivated by the text, if you don't have that, you're not going to agree with these interpretations according to which Jesus has a divine nature. And of course, Dr. Loke has his own unique take on two natures theory, which we did get into a little bit. And I think that's something that's important to see here to help everybody understand where he's coming from. It seems to me like, although his language wasn't always clear about this, he's coming down pretty firmly on the side of two natures theorists who think that the natures are concrete things, individual entities, and not just qualities or properties. So some theologians, when they say Jesus is human and divine, they mean he has all the qualities that make something a human being. Oh, and he also has all the qualities that make something a God, or at least that make something a divine person. I take it that Dr. Loke is not in that camp, right? And the obvious problem with that is it looks like there are going to be contrary qualities in those sets so that nothing could have all of the human qualities and also all of the defining divine qualities. But it seems to me that he's coming down in the camp that sees the two natures as things. And so they're like parts of the composite incarnate Christ. And he said a bunch of things that made me think this in the debate, that that's mainly his view. This is how in his opening statement he addressed my point that we came back to several times. How can Jesus be divine when he died? Because being divine requires being essentially immortal. It's a contradiction for an essentially immortal being to die. Here's his first pass at that. One thing can have two parts with different properties. So, for example, I'm bleeding in respect of my leg, suppose, but it's possible that I'm also not bleeding in respect of my arm at the same time, right? So I can be bleeding in one part of my body, but not bleeding in another part of my body. So likewise, it's possible for the Lord Jesus Christ to have two parts, a divine nature and a human nature with different properties. So he died in respect of his human nature, but not in respect of his divine nature, which cannot die. 
And we find this concept within the biblical text itself. So, for example, in Philippians chapter 2. Well, I think that's quite a stretch to say that we find that doctrine in Philippians 2. But anyway, let's just concentrate on what it is that he's saying. He used the dark phrase that Jesus died in respect of his human nature, but then he went on to say that the divine nature can't die, right? What he's suggesting is that the way that Jesus can be mortal and immortal is by having a part that is each. So then it's the divine essence which is alive and can't conceivably be dead. It's essentially immortal. And then there's the human nature which can conceivably be dead. It can be mortal and normally is mortal unless God has raised it to immortality. Now, is this a coherent Christology? Mm, maybe. It's coherent insofar as you're not saying that one and the same thing is essentially immortal and also isn't essentially immortal. right? So by dividing up those properties between the parts, you're avoiding that sort of contradiction, that sort of impossibility. However, now you're saying that there's this Christ who has two natures. He's a composite. There's not only the divine nature and the human nature, but there's got to be this two-nature Christ that the council talks about. He's a person. Now, can a person be composed of two parts, each of which are also persons? That, I think, is unclear. I'm inclined to think it's impossible, although I'm not sure I can demonstrate that it's impossible by an, you know, an irrefutable argument. But suppose I'm wrong about that. Suppose you can have a person which is composed of two other persons, which are its parts. Still, you clearly have got too many persons in your Christology. To be immortal is to be alive and to be immune from death. And if the divine nature is that, then the divine nature is a living thing. He also seems to want to say, as I mentioned later in the debate, that this thing is what is omniscient, omnipotent, perfectly morally good, immune from temptation. All of this implies that the divine nature is a divine person. Okay, but then if the human nature is the thing which dies... To die, we're talking about a human death, that's a loss of a human life. A human life is the kind of thing that can only be had by a human person. And so it looks like he's implied that the human nature is a man, it's a human person. Now this is exactly what the famous 3rd century theologian Origen thought. I don't think he believed in a composite Christ, but he thought there were two persons there, an eternal divine person and also a man. But surely this is a crazy Christology that can't be squared with the New Testament. Right In the New Testament, the words that refer to Christ, such as the Son of God, or Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, etc., these are not ambiguous terms that can refer to one of two different characters. They're all co-referring terms. Like this is just reading comprehension of the New Testament. So there's only one unique Son of God, only one Christ, only one Jesus in the New Testament, and this is explicitly said to be and always portrayed as being a man. So there's no room for this other guy. Now there's another interesting angle here. Go back to his example that he has, you know, say one body part that's bleeding, another part that's not. You would say if uh, poor Dr. Loke was in this condition, say uh, his arm is bleeding, but none of his other parts are bleeding. You would say then that Dr. Loke is bleeding. So you would say that he's bleeding because, strictly speaking, a part of him is bleeding. Would you say he was not bleeding because his other arm and his legs are not bleeding? No, you wouldn't say that. 
So you can't always describe the whole a certain way just because, strictly speaking, it's the part that is that way. Okay, now think about this eternal divine person. According to Orthodox theories, once upon a time, this eternal divine person existed, but this human nature that we're talking about did not exist. So we know just by that, that having this particular human nature is not essential to that eternal divine person. And as truly divine, it would seem that this eternal divine person has to be, by his essence, immortal. Now, dying is the loss of life. When Jesus gets crucified on the cross, is this in any way going to stop or interrupt any aspect of this eternal divine life, which consists of omniscience, omnipotence, moral perfection, and so on? It would seem not. It had this life before it had a human nature. If now the human nature can be said to die or is even fully destroyed, that's not going to keep this divine life from just rolling along as normal. Okay, and because that divine self is, according to Orthodox theories, supposed to be the same self as the composite Christ, that self never dies. And so, even if you want to say that in some sense the human nature dies, It doesn't seem to follow that the composite Christ dies because the part which is himself and is the only essential part to him just keeps right on living like before. So it doesn't seem that you get a Christ who could be said to be both mortal and immortal. It seems that you just get an essentially immortal Christ who just can't even conceivably die. Well, that doesn't seem to be a man. That sounds like docetism, a doctrine on which Jesus is only apparently a man. Now, to me, if you get docetism or you get two Jesuses, you need to go back to the drawing board and reconsider the New Testament again and try to come up with another Christology. Like Those just aren't going to do. They're not going to be compatible with what the texts are teaching. Again, consider how this is supposed to work in the case of being created or being uncreated. Right? Being fully divine implies not ever having been created. You're the kind of thing that, in principle, couldn't be created. Whereas being human implies being a creation of God, right? Part of this human lineage, which was caused, put into motion by God. If there's only one Christ, and you say he's human and divine, and humanity implies being created and divinity implies being uncreated, you're just trying to push a contradictory Christ on us. And it's no good to change the subject and just want to talk about his parts. Well, the divine nature is uncreated, and the human nature is created Great. Okay, well, what about Jesus, though? Because that's what my question was about. Again, it looks like the answer ought to be, Jesus has a created part, but it's a part that he could and used to exist without, whereas the one part that's really essential to him, his divine nature, is uncreated. So it looks like just straightforwardly, Christ, that is the Son, Jesus, has to be uncreated, because in all possible worlds, he is never created. Now, that he has a created part is an interesting point, but it doesn't make him, the whole Christ, created. So again, it looks like we're faced with docetism, something which simply isn't created, but okay, maybe he has a created part, doesn't seem to be a human, because any human is part of God's creation. But a docetic Jesus cannot be squared with New Testament Christology. When the Trinity's podcast returns... How easy is it to rule out any kind of subordinationism about the sun?
Another issue I have with Loke's views about the New Testament is how he thinks he can rule out any kind of subordinationism. So even if Jesus pre-existed, it doesn't follow that he's divine. And even if he's involved in creation, as I pointed out, it doesn't follow that he's divine, because he might not be the ultimate source of creation. But Dr. Loke thinks just looking at these alleged Christ-creator texts that we can deduce that Jesus is not in any sense created. So in part of his opening statement, he says this. Now, Dale raised another issue. He says even if Jesus is involved in creation and was pre-existent, he might not be eternal or uncreated. First of all, 1 Corinthians 8.6 says that the Lord Jesus, like the Father, is distinguished from all things. So Jesus Christ is not part of all things. All things, the creation, is from the Father. Jesus is not part of all things. Therefore, Jesus is not part of creation. Jesus is uncreated. And I think that's a fallacy right there. For a couple hundred years, you had highly informed interpreters of the New Testament who bought into this two-creator theory, people like Justin Martyr and Tertullian and Arius, who could look at this passage and see it as perfectly consistent with their subordinationism, and it's not too hard to see how. When it says that through this one was created all things, if that's how you're going to take John 1 and 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, through the all things in question would be the things that were the result of the Genesis creation. Not all things whatsoever, right? Because it wouldn't include God, for instance. Okay, but if Jesus isn't a part of the Genesis creation, how does it follow that he himself was never caused to exist? Is it self-evident somehow that there was only one creation? Why couldn't God bring this divine person into existence before creation? Then he wouldn't be part of that creation. I don't know, I don't think you can rule this out. There's nothing about the grammar there, even if you're going to think that they are teaching that Christ was involved in the Genesis creation. There's no implication there or even a clear assumption that Jesus is eternal, that he's fully divine, or that he was never in any sense caused or created. It's just not there. Now, if the New Testament authors had wanted to say that Jesus was eternal, or that he had a divine nature, or that he was never in any sense caused to exist or created, they could have said that, but they didn't. Now, I'm sure that a lot of Unitarian Christian listeners to the debate were, like me, surprised that he wanted to put such a weight on one of our favorite texts, which is 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. through And it's a favorite Unitarian text because it says that for us there is one God, comma, the Father. What's happening there is the words the Father are there to specify who the one God is. That's what they're doing in the sentence just as the words Jesus Christ are there to specify who the one Lord is. If I say, this is my wife, Candace, the point of the proper name is to give some further information about just who that wife is. When in the New Testament they mention one God, the Father, the point is to tell you who the one God is. It's to give further information. It's to further specify the subject in question. Also, you may have noticed that he easily brushed off one of our other favorite passages, which is John 17, 1-3, in which Jesus, praying to God, refers to him, that is to the Father, as the only true God. Now, of course, Dr. Loke is well-trained in logic, and he knows how you would standardly translate an only statement into first-order logic with quantification. If somebody is the only true God, that's to say that this one has the status true God, 
And here's the second claim for anything, whatever, if that one is true, God, then that one just is the one we mentioned before. It reflects an assumption that the one God and the Father are one and the same. But he comes at the text with a certain way of looking at them, which causes these obvious implications to just bounce right off of him. And you can hear it among other places here at about 14 minutes in the debate. Dale has another objection. He claims that in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, the Father equals to God and Jesus equals to Lord. Therefore, Jesus is Lord, but not God. However, this way of reasoning is clearly fallacious. Why? Because Paul also called the Father Lord, right? So if we follow Dale's reasoning, then God shouldn't be called Lord because Jesus equals Lord, right? So the Father is not Lord, right? No, this is wrong because we read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we find that Paul also calls the Father Lord as well. Well, that's just a misunderstanding. Of course, the point isn't about language at all. Nowhere have I said or assumed that only Jesus can be called Kurios or Lord in the New Testament, just as nowhere have I assumed or asserted that only God can be referred to using the Greek word theos. Clearly, there are cases in both Old and New Testament where that word is used for someone else. And it just is a standard New Testament doctrine that now that Jesus has been exalted, there's one God, but also, in addition to him, there's one Lord. Look at Ephesians 4, 4-6 through 6 for that, among other places. A different way to put this point is that for there to be one God is not the same as saying that there is one, quote, God. To say that there is one, quote, God is to say that there is only one who can be called by that word, who can be named by that word or title, which is false. But to say that there is only one God, only one being that has that status, is true according to the Bible. To say that there's only one Lord is not the same as saying there's only one, quote, Lord. It's false that there's only one, quote, Lord. But there is only one who has the same status as the risen and exalted Jesus. That's what it means for there to be one Lord in the New Testament sense. Okay, but there's more going on, just in confusion about what Unitarians are saying. And I think you can hear it here. So let me just continue a bit after the part you just heard. First Corinthians 8, 6 should not be understood as the Father equals God and Lord, Lord and Jesus equals Lord and not God. I mean, this is fallacious. Rather, what First uh, Corinthians 8, 6 is trying to say is that the one God can be identified by or represented by the Father, and the one Lord, Yahweh, can be identified by and represented by Jesus. The background of this is the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, where it says the Lord, the Kyrios, our God, Kyrios is one. And so 1 Corinthians 8.6 implies that God the Father and Jesus are both within the unique being of the one God and one Lord, as proclaimed by the Shema. Well, of course, it's not saying any such thing. There's no statement there at all about the Father and Son being parts of God or within the being of God, nor is there any statement like that in the Shema. What I want to get at is this peculiar notion of representation that he's using. This is really a puzzling aspect of his interpretation, and I didn't understand it during the debate, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me now. Except just that it's a basic defensive move against seeing certain things about the New Testament. So this triune God of orthodoxy is not himself a character in any biblical narrative, and is not the clear subject of any passage in Old Testament or New Testament. And there isn't a single word in either Old Testament or New Testament that was then understood to refer to a trinity. Any word that we translate as God is either referring to the Father or to the Son or to someone else, such as the unique case where Satan is referred to as the God of this world. 
Now, this is really baffling for a Trinitarian. How can you say that, hey, this whole book is fundamentally about God, that is to say the Trinity, and this guy doesn't make an appearance anywhere in the narratives and anywhere in the discussions? And so I think the way he gets around it is he wants to say, well, the persons of the Trinity represent God. And so whenever one of them is doing something, whenever you see the Father or the Son or the Spirit doing anything, well, that counts as God doing it because they represent God. Now, as far as I can tell, this is just not a biblical doctrine at all, that fundamentally there's this trinity, but he never does anything directly, but he always does things through his representatives, and those are the Father, Son, and Spirit. And I have to say, on the face of it, it's really, really odd to think there is this God who is the one true God and who, for some reason, never speaks for himself. He always has to speak through others, namely these ones who are parts of him. Why would he never speak for himself? Would he be incapable? Would he just choose never to speak directly, but only to speak through someone else? It's really a strange notion. It's very odd to think that God can only self-reveal by having someone else represent him. It's very odd to suggest that for some reason or other, an all-knowing and all-powerful being only speaks through others, and indeed never gets a direct mention in any of his divine revelation. And if by this talk of representation he doesn't mean something that one person or self does for another, then I guess I don't understand what the suggestion is. So let's listen to how he uses this idea of representation to escape the obvious meaning of John 17, 1 through 3. Let's look at John chapter 17, verse 3. I think this is Dale's favorite verse in the Bible. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Dale thinks that this verse implies that Father equals true God, therefore Jesus isn't. However, again, this is a fallacious deduction because, again, the phrasing is similar. One God and, uh, uh, you know, when you compare this with 1 Corinthians 8, 6, right? One God, the Father, doesn't mean that one God equal the Father. We can, likewise, in John chapter 17, verse 3, one only true God, referring to the Father, doesn't, doesn't mean that the Father equals the only true God. So just like in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, we can understand John chapter 17 as the Father represents the only true God, and or the only true God is identified by the Father. It doesn't mean that the Father equals the only true God. So this is the first point. The second point is that the context indicates that this is the case. In both cases, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and also in John chapter 17, we find that the context implies that Jesus is included within the divine being. So, for example, in verse 2 in John chapter 17, John chapter 17, it contrasts the Father not with Jesus himself, but with it's implying that it contrasts with other claimants to deity. And more importantly, in verse 3, it says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is that we need to know Jesus as well. And it, of course, in, in the Jewish thought, eternal life is an eternal relationship with God. So the knowledge here is a kind of relational knowledge. And here, Jesus Christ is identified as the object of knowledge alongside the Father, which implies that Jesus is truly divine because eternal life is having a relational knowledge with God. So this implies that Jesus is within the divine being. Moreover, when we read the verse 5, Jesus goes on to say, with the glory I had with you before the world existed, this verse is referring back to the beginning of the gospel in John chapter 1. Well, let's not go into that. To say that eternal life consists in knowledge of the Father, who's the one true God, and also of the Son, who's the man Jesus, no, that doesn't imply that Jesus is God or that he's fully divine. Yes, a Jew would normally assume that God is the source of all life and that God will be the source of eternal life. And also, we read in this same gospel, John 5, 26, 
For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So Jesus is a source of eternal life as well by God's granting this to him. Elsewhere, John 6.68, Peter, the leader of the disciples, says to Jesus, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life, which makes him a source of eternal life in virtue of the words that is the message, the teaching that he's been given by God. Back to John 17, verse 8, Jesus prays, For the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Is this passage, or 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, teaching that Jesus is internal to the being of God, or that Jesus is a part of God? On the face of it, no. It's neither stated, nor clearly implied, nor clearly assumed. So this idea of the persons of the Trinity, quote, representing God, I don't think it's part of the proper interpretation of any text in Old Testament or New Testament. And one way that I think it really interferes with understanding the New Testament is that in the New Testament, the Father is not a representative of God. The Father is God. Like It could hardly be more clear in some places. It's not the kind of thing that is very often stated because it's just universally presupposed both by Jesus and by his opponents, right? In John, he mentions the one who you say is your God. That's the same one that Jesus calls the Father. That's the God of the Jews. That's Yahweh. In the New Testament, they don't use the word Yahweh because they think it's impious to say it. So they refer to him as our Father in heaven or God the Father or just God. Now, representation is a biblical concept. The prophet will speak even first person on behalf of God. This is what you're reading, say, in the famous prophecies of Isaiah. And if the angel of the Lord is to be understood as a literal angel, then there you do have representation. Representation, as I understand it, is something that one person does for another. Now, is Dr. Loke saying that the triune God is a person and that the Father is another person and that the Father is acting on behalf of the triune God? And by the way, the Son and Spirit are different persons. That looks like it would be a for-self Trinity theory, like the theory of my friend Chad McIntosh. I don't think it fits the New Testament well. So when Jesus is praying to God, He's really praying to a representative of God, but not really to God himself. I mean, he's not directly praying to God. I think it's a weird misreading of the New Testament. So if he really means representation, that's a person-to-person thing. It's something one person does on behalf of another. That requires the triune God to be a person. Well, that's at least one too many persons, right? We could also bring up the matter of God's spirit. But supposing the Father, Son, and Spirit are different persons, does he really want to say that God is a fourth person, the Trinity, and that he's acting through each one of these other persons or agents or selves? I hope not. But I think the issue for New Testament interpretation here is, how could the New Testament be more clear that the one God just is the Father? When the Trinity's podcast returns... How do the New Testament authors show their assumption that the one God just is the one called Father, and vice versa?
this, I think, was maybe the most significant loose end from the debate. Dr. Loke's appeal to representation versus my claim that in the New Testament, the one God and the Father are one and the same. Here's one place where it came up. They all keep saying that you know, the Father equals the one God. But I already explained in my opening statement that this is false. The text doesn't say that the Father equals the one God. It can be taken as the Father representing the one God. He is one person within the one God. So he can represent, he can, it doesn't imply equivalence. And therefore your objection is without basis. Equivalence is implied in many ways, which we can talk about if we have time. And it turned out we didn't have time to talk about those other ways. So I want to do that now. It's not just that the Father is called God that makes me say that these authors think that the one God and the Father are one and the same, but it's a whole pattern of language. And I talk about this in my podcast, 189, The Unfinished Business of the Reformation. But let me just show you a couple of different ways in which these authors betray their assumption that the one God just is the Father, which, by the way, would exclude the Father from being a mere representative of God. So what are some of these ways in which they show this assumption? Very often, when we're talking about a certain subject, we'll decide to refer to it in two different ways, I guess just to make sure that everybody is clear exactly what or who we're talking about. So the second reference will come in just kind of an extra clarifying or redundant clause in which the person or thing is referred to in a different way. So you see this, for instance, in the New Testament regarding Jesus, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, comma, the Son of God. Jesus Christ and the Son of God are assumed to be co-referring expressions. It's just making sure that we're absolutely clear who we're talking about by referring to him by two different titles. Again, 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul writes, God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, comma, Jesus Christ our Lord. So first he refers to God's Son, then just for emphasis or to make sure you know who we're talking about, or for some reason, he adds the phrase, Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's that referring to, Jesus Christ our Lord? The same one just referred to by saying his Son. The Son doesn't represent Jesus Christ our Lord, and Jesus Christ our Lord doesn't represent the Son. No, they're one and the same. That's an assumption of what Paul says here. Again, 2 Corinthians 1.19, For the Son of God, comma, Jesus Christ, comma, who we proclaimed among you, etc. Right? Son of God and Jesus Christ are assumed there by Paul to be co-referring terms. Now, sometimes I think this use of different names or titles or expressions to refer repeatedly to the same thing, sometimes I think these are varied up just for stylistic reasons. It just sounds better than repeating the same name or title or expression over and over. So, for instance, again about Jesus, Ephesians 4.13, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. He could have written Son of God twice there. He could have said Jesus the second time, but he chose Christ. Why? Why not? It sounds better to vary up the things that you're calling the subject of the sentence. Again, 2 John verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, comma, the Father's Son, in truth and love. 
Okay, so he's sending grace, mercy, and peace from two, from God, and from Jesus. And in addition to referring to Jesus as Jesus Christ, he refers to Jesus as the Father's Son. Why? Is it necessary for clarity? It can be in some contexts. I don't think it is here. It's probably just for stylistic reasons. He just wants to refer to him twice there. And so he does that by using co-referring expressions. In the New Testament context, Jesus Christ refers to the same one as the Father's Son, or the Son of God, or Christ, etc. Jesus Christ doesn't represent the Father's Son. The Father's Son doesn't represent Jesus Christ. Those are just one and the same. I think we all understand this about this type of speaking and writing, this phenomenon that I'm talking about. Now, this is done not only respecting the Son, but with regard to the Father as well. So we read in John 6.45, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, it would mean the same thing if he wrote, they shall all be taught by God, and then went on to say, everyone who has heard and learned from God comes to me. But the author here just chooses to mix it up. Does the Father represent God? No. Does God represent the Father? No. It's just two names for the same thing. They're co-referential terms. Jesus' enemies, arguing back in John 8.41, Jesus says to them, you are indeed doing what your Father does. They said to him, we are not illegitimate children. We have one Father, comma, God himself. Now, this is a case of uh, clarifying who is meant. They're not going to accept that their Father is the devil. When they say they have one Father, the one that they're calling their one Father is God himself. So again, in the context, they're referring to the same one in two different ways. The Father doesn't represent God. Father just is God, and vice versa. Or the author of this gospel in John 13, 3 writes, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going to God, and then he continues on, right, God and Father here are co-referential. He could just as well have written, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from the Father and was going to the Father. But I think the author just thought that would be kind of stylistically awkward to say the Father, the Father, the Father. And so he does repeat God, but uh, rather than putting it in here three times, he uses the expression the Father one time instead. For whatever reason, John in particular does this sort of variation a lot, but it's not anything unique to him. So in Acts 2.33, in the middle of Peter's famous sermon on the day of Pentecost, he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. So first he refers to God by saying God, and then he refers to the same one by saying the Father. Does the Father represent God? No. It's just another way to refer to God. It's another title of God. And the varying terms don't have to be simple. They could be more fancy, like in Ephesians 1.17. Paul writes, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom, etc. So we've got two big phrases here, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who does that refer to? The same one that's referred to in the next clause, the Father of glory. Right, so he's just adding a specification there, not necessarily because it's unclear, but just because he wants to refer to God in two different ways, as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and as the Father of glory. 
Does the Father of glory represent God? No. Does God represent the Father here? No. Two fancy co-referring expressions, both referring to God. Colossians 1.3, in our prayers for you, we always thank God, comma, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is the Father representing God there? No, the Father just is God. He's referring to one and the same one there, first by calling him God, then second by calling him the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this is just basic reading comprehension, whether of the Greek or of the English. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, comma, the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Okay, does the Father here represent God? No. He's referring to God using the word God, and then he's adding the reference there that he's the Father. Is it necessary? No. Is it clear? Yes. It's a clear case of referring to the same thing in two different ways. Later in the book, James 3.9, with it, he's referring to the tongue, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. Right, The meaning would be the same if he had written the likeness of the Lord and Father. It's just that stylistically, it would have been awkward to use that phrase twice. Now, here's a really interesting example, 2 John 9, in which the author swaps out names for God and also for Christ. Why? Because it sounds good. He writes, everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, but goes beyond it, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Right, so he might have written, whoever abides in the teaching has both God and Christ. The sentence would basically mean the same thing. Does Christ represent the Son or vice versa? Of course not. Does God represent the Father or does the Father represent God? Of course not. These are just two pairs of co-referring terms. It's just good writing. And of course, these co-referring terms need not come merely in pairs. There's an interesting example in 2 Corinthians 1, 2 through 4, where Paul refers to God in five different ways, all in the space of two sentences. Okay, so verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father, okay, that's one, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second expression. He's referring to God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the Father of mercies. That's a third way to refer to God as the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation. That's a fourth way to refer to God. He continues in verse 4, who consoles us in all our affliction so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. That's the fifth way right there. So in three verses, he refers to one and the same God, aka the Father, using five different words or phrases. It's colorful, it's varied, it's good writing, and it's perfectly clear. And no, there isn't any assumption here or implication or suggestion that the Father represents God or anything like that. And that this works and is not confusing is because all of these authors assume that the one God and the one called the Father are one and the same. 
They assume, contrary to what Dr. Loke has been saying, that the Father just is God, and vice versa. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ is the same as the Son of God, or Jesus is the same as Jesus Christ. So that's part of what I meant when I said there are many ways in which we can tell that the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the one true God of the Jews, turns out to be the Father in the New Testament. Another way has to do with fulfilled prophecies. So for instance, the famous prophecy that I mentioned in the debate, Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this was asserted by Peter and by various New Testament authors to be fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, so the Lord there, that's the substitute for the name Yahweh, that was the Father. The fulfillment of this is the Father exalting the Son to his right hand. So the one referred to as my Lord is Jesus. Okay, well, this prophecy about what Yahweh is going to do, raising this human to his right hand, was fulfilled in Jesus. And so therefore, Yahweh just is the Father. For that, see Acts 2, 33-35. When the Trinity's podcast returns, an important linguistic point that I failed to effectively press in the debate. that I think I didn't effectively press has to do with the New Testament uses of the word kurios, which we translate as Lord. And actually, this is where I dropped the ball when I forgot what I meant to say right in the middle of the debate, which you might have noticed. Hey, I'm getting old, okay? Dr. Loke clearly acknowledged that there are multiple meanings of kurios in the New Testament. One of them is a substitute for the divine name, and it refers to God, I would add, to the Father. But then also it can just mean sir or can refer to just an ordinary human master. And he seemed to be arguing that, as applied to Jesus, clearly it doesn't just mean sir, or just a boss or master in an ordinary sense. And so therefore, it must mean that he's God, or that he's within the being of Yahweh. Well, first of all, that's not a New Testament usage of Lord to mean a person within the being of Yahweh. But what there is, is a New Testament usage, as I explained in the debate, based on Psalm 110.1, where Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there's a fourth use of kurios, Lord, in the New Testament, in which it is a unique title of Jesus and doesn't apply to God or just to your normal sir or ordinary human master. So to say that the author can't mean just sir or an ordinary master, therefore he must mean God himself, is a fallacy because it simply overlooks this special, unique New Testament usage of the term as a special title unique to the risen and exalted Jesus. For more on that, you can check out Trinity's podcast 225, Biblical Words for God and for His Son, Part 2, Old Quote Lord versus New Quote Lord. Another thing that I wish we'd had more time to go into 
would be what I think is a really devastating objection to his particular two-nature theory, his Cripsis model of incarnation. Here's an approach to it, starting with a portion of my opening statement. This Jesus, who, yes, is amazingly wise, who has told us the truth that he heard from God, from whom we have received the words of eternal life, this one is sometimes unsure about what is going to happen next which is why he's able to ask God for the favor we read about in Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. In the Gospels, Jesus asks questions for information from other humans, as we all do. Who touched me, he asked, when he felt the power go out from him on one occasion. On another, as a boy rolls around on the ground, foaming at the mouth, Jesus asks his father, How long has this been happening to him? Like us, he often asks because he doesn't know something. Despite his astounding and we might say divine wisdom, Jesus during his earthly ministry was far from being perfect in knowledge. He'd have been more perfect if he knew all the aforementioned things. Now, as the ensuing discussion brought out, Dr. Loke's reply to all of that is that Jesus actually does know every single last one of those things because he's omniscient. And I think he misreads statements to the effect that Jesus knows all things, but I don't want to get into that again here. He theorizes that Jesus has all knowledge. He really knows all things. But during his earthly ministry, a lot of it is socked away in what some psychologists call the pre-conscious. So it's in his mind somewhere. It's not something he's directly aware of. If he were to go digging he would be able to find these items of knowledge, presumably, but it's just that he's not directly aware of them. Right? So he does know the day or the hour, he's just not directly aware. Now, we had a nice little fight about that passage, and I think I did effectively make the point that it's not plausible there that Jesus is talking about mere awareness rather than knowledge generally. But I think a more important point is that an absolutely perfect being is supposed to be perfect in knowledge And this should not be understood as merely knowing all things in some way. Perfection and knowledge should require, I think, to be as certain as one could possibly be about these things that one knows. And I think it should also include immediate, direct awareness of all that one knows. A being which knows all things, but 99.9% of it is socked away in his pre-conscious, is not as great as a being which knows all things and is directly aware of all that knowledge that he has. And so a perfect being has to have more than just any old kind of omniscience. So I don't think that this Cripsis suggestion really shows how a human Jesus could have the divine sort of knowledge. Another point which I made all too quickly is this sort of strategy wouldn't seem to help with divine attributes that aren't mental. You can't take something like aseity or uncreatedness and just sock it away in the divine pre-conscious. It doesn't work. And again, still all of this, I think, requires what I mentioned at the start of this episode, which is distributing the divine and human attributes between these two different parts of Christ. But then again, that doesn't work because that will make the divine nature a divine person and the human nature a human person. And again, there's the more general consideration, which I think is really evidentially important, that the New Testament authors, while portraying Jesus as being limited in knowledge, or less than divine in what kind of knowledge he has, never lift a finger to warn us against inferring that he's not divine. Now, if they thought he was divine, they would warn us. 
but they don't. And this is good evidence that they don't think that he is divine in the full sense, which implies having the God type of knowledge or the other divine attributes. For more general arguments like that, which I think help us to consider the context of the whole New Testament era and all of the New Testament writings, check out Trinity's podcast 334, Who Do You Say I Am? Now, in his rebuttal, I think he made a a bit of a strategic mistake. He spent too much of his rebuttal time trying to refute a claim that Jesus suffered from impure motives. I think by that he meant motives such that you're blameworthy if you have them, right? So you're just a sinner by virtue of having that motive. And it was not a good use of time because I wasn't saying anything like that. I was just talking about normal motives, not any kind of impure ones. And just making the point that Jesus, as a being with human limitations, could be motivated to do something wrong. That's not a sin. The sin is when you then give in to that motivation. For the most part, he agreed with me about what the divine attributes were, and just thought that his two natures theory would give him a way around any clash between divine and human attributes. And as I pointed out in the debate and a little bit earlier, it only does so at a severe cost of having a disastrous two-self Christology. One exception to this general rule that we're agreeing about divine attributes, I think, is in my claim that divinity implies having top-level, underived authority. I mean, he just has to deny that because Jesus is obviously under authority, and yet he wants to say that he's fully divine. But I think that supervenes on other divine attributes, just God being ultimate and being the free creator of all else and his being perfect. I think he is just going to necessarily be top level in authority and not be under another. There's also, I think, a disagreement between us about what humanity involves. It seems obvious to me that humanity implies the possibility of having limited knowledge. Not that it demands having limited knowledge, but that it implies that it's possible for you to be limited in knowledge. He seems to deny this because he says that Jesus is human, and yet Jesus can't fail to know anything. Never mind that it's not all in his direct consciousness. If you tell me that there's somebody who couldn't possibly fail to know something, that I'm going to infer, I think correctly, that you're not talking about a human being. As we all know, humans can and typically do have a very limited perspective, and there's quite a lot that gets past us. A similar concern, I think, applies to the concept of divine power. It's not just omnipotence in the sense of being able to do anything. It should be the greatest sort of power, which may mean that you can't do some things, by the way, such as not being able to lie or do something that's intrinsically wrong. Not just unlimited power, but unlimited power that can't be lost, and also, I want to say, directly accessible to one. So it's not that you can do anything, but it, you know, it takes a lot of effort. You'd have to go through a big series of steps to do most of these things. No, the greatest sort of power would be a power which is unlimited in that way as well. So that anything you can do, you could just immediately directly do without going through a bunch of precursors or rolling back, you know, you're setting aside the power or things like that. And I think this clashes with what he calls a functional kenosis understanding of Philippians 2. He wants to say that Jesus set aside the use of his divine powers. Okay, well, if he did that, 
would he then have fully divine powers, which goes beyond just omnipotence? I don't think he would. Also, this whole kenosis approach to Philippians 2 really is a latecomer in Christian tradition. It really only goes back to the 1800s. The emptying, I think, there is just Jesus laying aside his privileges as the unique Son of God. Now, in the course of the debate, I had mentioned Jesus' statement that only God is good, seemingly implying that he's not good in the same sense that God is. Here, Dr. Loke comes in with a convoluted but traditional sort of spin on that passage, and I want to contrast his take on it with someone else's. They also mention Mark chapter 10, 18, where Jesus says, no one is good but the Father alone. Now, in that passage, if we read it in context, we need to understand that that passage actually concerns soteriology. I mean, the young man came to look for Jesus and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what is the problem with the young man? He's too self-righteous. He thinks that he has obeyed the law. You know? And so he's using the word good right, in, in a very loose way. And so Jesus corrected him by saying that, you know, why do you call me good? Do you understand what the word good means? Right? Now, Jesus is not denying that he's good. He's actually trying to make the person reflect on what does he understood by the word good. And only God is good, right? which means that all human beings are not. But Jesus is not denying that he himself is good. He says that, why do you call me good? When, when, you, when you call me good, do you know what you're talking about? Right? That's that what Jesus is saying. That's the point, right? because that passage concerns soteriology. And then Jesus goes on to expose his hypocrisy and to ask him to stop everything which the young man wasn't willing to do. Right? So um, it shows that he's not truly good, right? unlike Jesus, right? who was willing to give up everything for us when he died on the cross. So the context has to do with soteriology. What must I do to be saved? Does it follow here that Jesus is not as it appears on the face of it, disavowing goodness in the way that God is good? Is he just challenging the guy for speaking sloppily about goodness or not realizing you know, what he's saying about Jesus, where of course Jesus is fully assuming that he is good just as the one God is good? I don't think so. Here's another treatment of that passage by the famous Unitarian Christian Thomas Emlin in his Unhumble Inquiry. And I'm reading from the modernized edition just published by the Unitarian Christian Alliance, starting on page 53. He writes, Another infinite perfection that must be in the deity is supreme, absolute goodness. All nations have consented to this by the light of nature, that the Greek, taagathon, the good, and the Latin, optimus maximus, best and greatest, are the main titles of the supreme. As the orator says, he is one than whom nothing better, nothing greater can be conceived, the fullest and highest of all that are called good, for indeed all other goodness is derived from him. But the Lord Jesus explicitly disavows this description, good. Now he's quoting Mark. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Here it is most evident that he distinguishes himself from God as not the same with him, and denies of himself what he affirms of God. And as to that divine perfection of supreme, infinite goodness, he challenges the man for presuming to say words which seemed to attribute it to him, in other words, goodness to Christ, and leads him off to another who alone is good in a higher sense. It's astonishing to see what violence is done to the sacred text by those who maintain the equality of Jesus Christ to God his Father. How strange it is to suppose that our Lord's meaning is, 
I know, man, you do not understand me to be God as I am. Why then do you give me the title belonging to him only? There is not one word in the context which suggests this. Christ never challenges the poor man with this, that he thought too lowly of Jesus, as they suppose, but quite to the contrary, that he thought or spoke too highly of him. And truly, if the man's error was thinking too lowly of Christ, while his words otherwise were fairly enough applied to him, I cannot think our Lord would have rebuked him in that manner. For instead of keeping him still on the right subject and correcting his wrong conceptions about it, he seems clearly to carry him off to another from himself, as not the right subject, without correcting his thoughts of Christ at all. And for what purpose could Christ rebuke him in such a way that he never tells him what his mistake was, but rather tempts him to run away into another mistake? But rather than thinking too lowly of Christ, it'd make more sense, if anyone back then actually thought this, that the man thought Jesus to be God. For if he thought Jesus to be the supreme good, that is to think of him as God. If he only meant that Jesus was a less than supreme good, how could Christ rebuke him for it, since that would reflect no fault or error? And of course, those who say Christ receiving worship while on earth proves his deity can't explain why this man should give or why Christ should receive worship, as we see in Mark 10.17, unless he thought that Christ was God. But whatever the man thought, he said what Jesus Christ thought was only properly said about God and which was too much to be said about himself, as the obvious sense of his words declares. Who has the better reading of this passage? I'll have to go with Emlyn. So that's about all I had to say about the debate. There's a lot more that could have been said, but I think I covered the most important things in this long episode. It is a major clash with the New Testament when you deny that the Father is one and the same as the one God. And his theory, by making only the Trinity God, does require that. And this is a major clash between some Trinity theories and New Testament teaching. Of course, it's important to remember that some Trinity theories affirm that the Father just is God, that the Father and God are one and the same. Of course, they have different problems. Right? They'll then affirm that the Son just is God too, which unfortunately implies that the Son just is the Father, the Father just is the Son, which is obviously false according to the New Testament because they have differed from one another. But honestly, I do appreciate the fact that he senses this disconnect between his theology and the New Testament, and he comes up with this ingenious move to try to get around it. Well, actually, the Father just represents God. They never do identify the Father with God. Well, as I just showed, they constantly presuppose it. And so it really is a part of the contents of their teaching. When they talk about the Father, they are talking about the one God, not just some representative of the one God or one of the parts of the one God. So again, I thank Dr. Loke for a good, cleanly fought debate. I'm sincere when I say I hope we can do it again sometime. At the end of the previous episode, I suggested that I might discuss in this episode some written correspondence that we've had, but I don't have time to do that in this episode as it turns out, so I think I'll just do that in written form. This has to do with two blog posts I wrote under the title, Bach and Loke on Jesus' Blasphemy in Mark 14. So Dr. Loke, following uh, Dr. Daryl Bach in uh, several pieces of his scholarship, 
argues that there's an implication in Mark 14 where Jesus is being examined by the high priest at one of his trials. There's an implication there that Jesus is claiming divinity for himself. And I'm like, no, no, it doesn't happen. It's not there. It's not there even according to what Dr. Bach says. And so Dr. Loke has responded to this in written form. And with his kind permission, I'm going to make that guest blog post at trinities.org. So you can see my posts there discussing that famous episode in Mark 14. And you can read my critique and you can see Dr. Lokes come back to that. And then maybe I'll have something more to say in a future post. But that's all I've got for this week. And thank you for listening. This week's thinking music has been the track Underclocked, Under Underclocked Mix by Eric Skiff. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.